Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? We have a bit of a spicy episode today, because today we're talking about the complicated situation in Israel following a split election, China and Iran strengthening their ties with some major developments along the way, and, of course, there's no possible way I could get away with not talking about the situation with the Suez Canal. So, all of that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. It's actually going to be rapid-fire this time. So, Russia's Sergei Lavrov visited China uh, last week, effectively cementing the strategic partnership between the two countries. Now, there's been a lot of talk about it, uh, specifically with regards to um, the Biden administration's uh, harsh words towards Putin and some of the policies that have been taken over the years, really, by America and member states of the European Union towards Russia that have effectively driven them closer and closer to China. And now there's talk of an alliance, but I believe it is more accurate, and there are others like me who I've listened to, I believe it is more accurate to call it a strategic partnership, and that is what the people involved are saying about this as well, the Russians and the Chinese, and looking at kind of their interests, it that seems like that is the accurate statement. A strategic partnership between Russia and China has effectively been cemented with this visit by Sergei Lavrov to China. Now, what does this mean? It means that the China and Russia will probably have each other's back more than they usually do. Um, so they'll probably be cozying up to one another, but what, whether or not it evolves into a, a formal alliance, whether economic or military, still remains to be seen. Although China and Russia are getting closer economically due to China's uh, increasing need for energy, which the Russians, being a massive energy producer, can provide. So there's that. Definitely something to look out for. And definitely one thing I will be looking on for, because, well, Russia's a bit of a family favorite, or the house favorite, as I've begun calling them. But while we're talking about China, China and Iran have signed a 25-year cooperation agreement amid a series of diplomatic meetings and events. Now, we'll be getting into that a little bit later, though, but um, I guess I forgot to take it out of the rapid-fire news, so... I guess it's just foreshadowing for later on in the podcast. Ooh, definitely organized here, uh, but we'll get into that later. There's a nice juicy segment on that because something very interesting happened. Very, very interesting and opens the door for more interesting things to happen in the future. And you know we love our speculation here. And by we, I mean me. <laughs> So, anyway, Eritrea and the Ethiopian government have agreed for, uh, they have agreed 
to the Eritreans withdrawing their troops from the Ethiopian border. And this isn't just any Ethiopian. This isn't just any part of the Ethiopian border. This is specifically the border region between Eritrea and the Tigray region, which is currently in rebellion against the central government of Ethiopia. So there's that major diplomatic, well, win, really, for the Eritrean, not the Eritrean, the Ethiopian government. Kind of similar to how uh, during the American Civil War, we had President Lincoln basically playing these mind games to keep the Europeans from intervening on behalf of the Confederacy. So we have something a little similar to that, except on a more regional scale, you know. But still a major win for the Ethiopian government and probably a major blow to the air, not the air trains, to the Tigray. Or is it a major blow to the Tigray? Because they're kind of like hostile with Eritrea anyway. So really they've just uh, kind of won as well. I mean... There, there's not going to be foreign intervention, so that that's technically a win, but that foreign intervention would have been Eritrea stomping all over the Tigray Liberation Front, uh, or at least trying to, at a time when Tigray is busy fighting their former government, as far as they are concerned. So, I guess, in a way, it's a win for the Tigray rebels as well, but I don't think that they're going to see it that way, uh, especially with the government of Ethiopia breathing down their neck. But while uh, somewhere else in Africa, though, we have Angola suffering major drought during the rainy season. Uh, and this is likely going to cause food problems later on. Uh, Angola does produce lots of food because they're, like they're in like a peculiar geography within Africa where they don't get like... Uh, they're not in the tropics, we'll say that. So they... They're kind of in like a temperate environment, which makes it easier for them to do normal country things, like grow food. So, but I'd imagine this isn't helping anybody. Uh, drought, on top of what is likely an economic recession that they're in. <clears throat> so, yeah, well, I'm, I'd imagine there'll probably be some sort of international effort to bring food to them. Maybe, probably economic lockdown. Uh. Well, yeah. So anyway, on to Spain. Spain has rescued 40 people off the coast of the Canary Islands. Uh, and that's the little island chain to the northwest of the Western Sahara, uh, which America previously recognized Morocco's sovereignty over, actually, uh, in the ending days of the Trump administration. Uh, but for those who view Western Sahara as its own country, which technically we should operate as... Because it kind of is. Uh, we can also look at the Canary Islands as being an island chain to the southwest of Morocco. So there's that. It's a, they're the thick islands, not the tiny ones you can't see without zooming in. So those are owned by Spain still. Um, and this is an interesting thing that caught my attention. Because it comes in light of what we talked about last episode. Uh, with regards to the Med 5, Med being the Mediterranean, and the 5 being Spain, Italy, Malta, Cyprus, and Greece, who have been ganging up together to try to do something about the migrant crisis, and I'd imagine this, while they haven't quite given the quite the response 
that they quite might have wanted to, or at least or at the very least that they're contemplating right now, 40 people in this one incident, uh, and there were others who died uh, on this, uh, in the process of this. Um, I just highlighted the fact that 40 were rescued, but there was about three who died in this same incident. They drowned. So I'd imagine this is probably going to be just another domino in accelerating the Med 5's push towards border security. Because I'd imagine they're all not very happy to continuously absorb more and more people. Especially during a pandemic and especially during a recession that they're all in. And that many of them have been in since, what, 2008, 2009, when the financial crisis hit Europe. So, yeah, I'd imagine this is probably going to lead to some dominoes falling in the future. So, there is that. Meanwhile, Pakistan, we're going to jump all the way over to little, well, little big Pakistan... Uh, they are set to buy around 7 million doses of the Chinese COVID vaccine. And this is one of the first major instances I've seen of someone buying the Chinese vaccine. Usually people either opt for, say, one of like the many uh, vaccine options that we see in more Western nations, like the AstraZeneca or the, well, now the Johnson Johnson. And even before that, there was the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Uh, people either usually get that in countries that produce them, or they usually, what we've seen and what we've observed throughout this pandemic, is that countries are turning, were turning rapidly towards the Russian Sputnik V vaccine, um, almost on like the first choice basis. Uh, but definitely, when they were not able to get access to the other Western vaccines, uh, they went immediately to the Russian vaccine. So this was interesting to me to see someone go for the Chinese vaccine. And maybe the Chinese were just busy handing it out to their own people. And they've only just now decided to start going, yeah, I guess we can ship it out to other people. Meanwhile, Russia is just outsourcing the production I imagine they're making a pretty penny off of it, too. All, all these millions and millions of doses. Uh, which, yeah, it's a good thing. You know, People want their vaccine, and the Russians can give it to them, and the Russians uh, are aided in their economic recovery. They're not going all in on lockdowns anymore, so they're already, in relative terms, probably stronger than a lot of their stronger neighbors. Yeah. We've seen what they've been able to do with that relative increase in power from everyone else being in lockdown and them being not so much in lockdown. And what I mean by that is they've effectively annexed the Caucasus, but we're... <laughs> so anyway, uh, Cote de Ivory, or the Ivory Coast, I I've made it a point to say it like that, the Cote de Ivory. Yeah, I found it. I, I it was a funny thing. It was a funny thing, but I decided to say it like that, and now I have. But the Ivory Coast uh, has successfully eradicated sleeping sickness as a major health threat in the country, and that is some really that's some good news, you know. You know, we always talk we always talk some doom and gloom over here. Every now and then, you get these stories 
from these countries that people really don't pay attention to and it just shocks you and you're just like wow the best instance the best example i can think of is when thailand uh is starting to make moves to become a lng supplier in east asia a region that is starved for lng and i'm just like wow that is absolutely brilliant and here we have some more brilliance they have eradicated sleeping sickness as a major health threat props to the Ivory Coast. And that is an excellent way to end the rapid fire news and get into the meat. So we're going to start with something definitely not controversial. We're going to go right into uh, Israel's elections. <laughs> so Benjamin Netanyahu, who was the prime minister of the country for actually quite a while now, I think the better part of what the last decade. So his party, uh, in the recent election that Israel has had, and we'll get into the complexity of this election in just a minute, his party, which is, if I'm not mistaken, is Likud, Likud, L-I-K-U-D, that's his party, they have won around 24% of the vote. Now, in parliamentary systems, that is actually pretty huge, so... Uh, almost a quarter of the population, and they have gained around 30 seats in a out of a 120 seat um, parliamentary system. And in this system, because there was lots of talk about how he may or may not be able to hold on to power, and given that it was parliamentary, I figured, oh, they must need like a coalition. I had to read for that, you know, uh, but the things I do, I had to. Imagine having to read, but uh, <laughs> I read, and apparently they need 61 seats for a to form a ruling government. But given the fact that Israel is kind of like a, how do I say it, proportional representation is how they kind of conduct their elections. It's really hard for like a single group to get those 61 seats by themselves. So they form coalition governments. Uh, and that's how they get to the 61 necessary for the uh, to form a ruling government. And that's kind of how the Likud party has effectively dominated for the past, at least the, la the better half, the last half of the last decade. There we go. Alright, and so, yeah, I basically just said it already. That means that they need a coalition government uh, in order to become the ruling government that's the only way they're going to achieve that because 30 seats is a lot but it's not 61 they need more and it does seem likely that the two ultra orthodox parties uh which both have like nine and seven each uh seats so collectively they have about 16 it seems likely that they will join forces with netanyahu uh, bringing the potential total up to 46 seats, still falling short by, what is that, 15? Yeah, 15. Yeah, so they need 15 seats to get there, assuming that the ultra-Orthodox parties join him. It is also likely that the nationalist Yamina Yisrael Beitenu Yamina, Yisrael, Beitunu, Beitenu. Man, look, I, <laughs> I try, okay. 
the Yamina Yisrael Beitenu party. There we go. And yes, that is a single party, not three different parties. That is a single party. Breaking my tongue. They hold seven seats. They are very nationalist. And I'd imagine that in a time when tensions are rising with Iran and the harsh stance that Benjamin Netanyahu has taken towards Iran, uh, up to and including assassinations on Iranian territory of high-ranking Iranian officials and scientists, they're probably going to throw their lot in with him. I don't imagine that they would be too upset with him. Uh, not in any way that he couldn't like win them over. So that's another seven seats. Uh, this theoretical coalition now being up to 53 seats out of the 61 needed. But the interesting thing in this election, and here's kind of like where the stalemate comes in. Uh, the interesting thing here is the likelihood that Netanyahu will have to reach out to one of the Arab parties to gain the 61 seat majority he needs. Let me repeat that. In Israel, a country that is almost, well, that is ideologically and religiously at odds with Islam, the ruling party, the Likud party, has to form a coalition government. And in that coalition government, to get the seats necessary to be the ruling government, they may have to reach out to one of the Arab parties to gain the 61-seat majority that they need. Now, for obvious reasons, that would be wild. That would be wild. Especially given the, the fact that part of the coalition contains the ultra-Orthodox parties, and given their opinions regarding the country's Muslim population that makes the potential for this even wilder. I'd imagine if he tried to reach out for them, he would lose their support. Or at the very least, they would stick by him to gain the ruling government. And then they would just they would just tell him to go screw himself afterwards. Maybe that'll just trigger another snap election. I don't know. I'm not entirely familiar with parliamentary systems. But that would be quite the uneasy alliance, uh, I'll say that much. Um, but this can either this can either go, in my opinion, the way it did prior to this election, where Likud, and again that's Netanyahu's party, uh, Likud was able to garner the support of one of the opposition parties, uh, for instance, Israel's Labor Party, and they were able to secure a clear majority back then. However, now the opposition has left his co his they've left his coalition earlier this year and that's the Labour Party uh and others. So it's likely that they'll either not join Likud again in a coalition government or they'll just demand greater concessions in exchange for their support. Uh, it'll probably end up being the second one, because I don't imagine that Israel's opposition is any more pro-Arab than the ultra-Orthodoxies are. But we'll have to see. They could use their leverage right now to force something big out of him. Or he may have to try to reach out for the Arab parties and lose con 
lose the orthodox parties in control. They're in a bit of a mess right now. Now that I really sit back and think about it and talk about it to you guys, if he tries to reach out to the Muslim Arab parties, uh, he'll lose the ultra-orthodox parties, who I have in my notes collectively hold 16 seats. So are those couple seats going to be worth losing 16? Probably not in his calculations. Or maybe he can reach out to those uh, Muslim parties and try to gain the Labour Party back. But will it be enough? Who knows? It might be. It might not. I, it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess. Uh, and I see now why it's garnered so much attention just thinking about <laughs> the predicament they're in. Um, but basically, basically, long story, we're going to make this long story short, Israel is divided. Yeah, that That's the long story. The long story. That's the short story. But looking at Israel in the broader context of, you know, where they live, uh, they don't live in a very nice neighborhood. They, they live in the ghetto neighborhood. <laughs> and again, the, Israel is divided and distracted while their ideological rival Iran has just struck a major deal with China, which will provide them with a lifeline and potentially their own outside sponsor, where Israel has the United States, for now, Iran may have China in the future. And technically, Russia too, but uh, if I'm being honest here, I'm not quite sure how invested the Russians really are in Iran's well-being. I mean, they have mutual interests in Syria, a mutual adversary in the U.S., and a mutual partner in China, uh, but besides that, I'm not sure where Russia stands on, you know, just Iran by itself, known other things attached. Uh, I'd imagine they're on mildly friendly terms. They invite them to their military exercises, but uh, we'll have to see where the Russians, we'll see, uh, that's really all we can do, is watch and wait and see how that goes. But uh, on the topic of Russia, and again, we'll get to that major deal between China and uh, Iran later. But we'll talk about Russia for just a little bit right now. Because Russia's foreign minister, Andrei Rudenko, he has said that NATO and Europe aspirations are, in our opinion, an unjustified choice that should not be accomplished. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, he's not talking about Russia. He's talking to Georgia. Not the state, the country. He's talking to Georgia. And I'll repeat that. He says to Georgia, NATO and Europe aspirations, in our opinion, are an unjustified choice that should not be accomplished. Now, he then went on to say that, quote, Georgian politicians must decide that they want to be, they must decide what they want to be by themselves. Do they want to live in a stable and predictable situation? Or to constantly face suspicions further aggravated by Georgia's NATO membership? End quote. Now this was said during the 52nd uh, Geneva uh, discussion 
on security and stability in the Southern Caucasus. Now, we know here on this geopolitical podcast that countries and their representatives don't always say what they really mean. But that's where I come in, and I translate geopolitics to English. Uh, so let's let's see what Russia really said, all right? Georgia can do uh-huh, uh-huh, whatever they want, yeah, yeah, so long as, oh, there's the stipulation, they do what we want. <laughs> they, Georgia can do whatever they want so long as they do what we want. Well, that sounds pretty accurate to me. I mean, come on now. Who wouldn't want to live in the stable and predictable situation of having Moscow govern you. Like, come on, man. What are you doing? <laughs> it was a very pe- peculiar story I came across. Uh, but, hey. Uh, all I have to say now is, do I need any further proof that Russia has de facto control over the Caucasus? Do I? Do I really? I don't think I do. <laughs> I, I I'd say the case has been made. They have de facto control over the the Caucasus, the Southern Caucasus, and now they're talking that shit. They're talking that shit. They said you can't leave. There is no escape, little Georgia. I don't imagine the Georgians are going to be able to really uh, do anything about that. Uh let alone say anything about that. Uh, so anyway, Georgia is Georgia has fallen. Uh, but while we're still talking about the former Soviet space, a country, little Moldova, which is between Russia... No, not between Russia. Well, not between Russia for now. But between the Ukraine and Romania, there's a little country... Uh, called Moldova. They used to be a part of the Soviet Union. Now, Moldova is currently seeking access to the Sputnik V vaccine. They tried to get the other Western vaccines and got turned down, and now they're looking for the Russian Sputnik V, likely bringing them even further into Russia's economic orbit. Just a little interesting thing I noted in the former Soviet space. I figured this would be a good place to fit it into the the podcast. But Georgia has fallen. The Caucasus are now officially, unofficially, in Russia's hands. Yes, officially, unofficially. That is the unofficial, but yet official term for what's happening here. If you're confused, great. So, that's the major moves Russia's making. And I don't think we're done talking about Russia. There's one more thing that I'll get into Uh, towards the end of the episode because it ties in nicely to what we'll talk about. But we're moving now to what China's up to, and we'll get into that in just a minute. All right, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about China because China is on the move. Now, I've been hyping this up all episode, but I think it's really, really important. It's a pretty major development, and I think it was quite worth talking about. I know 
I saw earlier today that the Duran made a episode, or was it Alexander, his individual channel? He made an episode on it. I have yet to watch it, but I will after I record this. I like those guys. So, China and Iran have signed a 25-year cooperation agreement amid a series of diplomatic meetings and other agreements. I said that before, but let's elaborate on what I mean. China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, met with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani prior to the signing of this 25-year cooperation agreement, uh, so that they already in talks with one another, cozying up, kissing us, doing all the fun stuff of geopolitics and international relations. But um, the real meat of this 25-year cooperation agreement, to me anyway, was that the agreement officially added Iran to the list of Belt and Road countries. And that was the major bombshell for me, reading this story. Uh, I almost didn't notice, because I, I saw it, and I was pro just going to write it down in the rapid-fire news and then move on, but I decided to read the full article. And it's, well, 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 I'm happy I did, because now I have something to talk about. And previously, the project, the Belt and Road, had to go through Kazakhstan, uh, it had to go north through Kazakhstan, then down to Central Asia, to, through Central Asia, to just barely reach northern Iran, and that was through existing rail lines. Now that Iran has signed on to the initiative, China will be able to create a direct line to Iran, perhaps even a land line. <laughs> if you're old enough to get that joke, you're old. But Iran may now get a real direct route to China and vice versa, and it's the vice versa that I believe is the more important one, but Iran having a route to China is important regionally. Now, uh, this route, really, this theoretical, which may not be theoretical for much longer, because I'd imagine they're probably already going into the planning phases of laying down the infrastructure, uh, probably within the next few weeks or months. This deal that Iran and China have made together is opening up a lot of possibilities, quite a series of possibilities, uh, that will play out in just the next few years, namely between China and Iran. Uh, and a couple of these possibilities that I see is, number one, Iran gaining an unsanctionable market for its oil. Um, the, a land route to China, and really East Asia in general, because China has, once you get there, that you can just access and interface with the Chinese rail network and go all the way to the Chinese coastline, and, well, you can sell your oil to East Asia via land, although that would be pretty expensive, but I'd imagine if something were to happen and Iran can't get through the Gulf 
the Pers the Gulf of Persia, the, the Persian Gulf. If they, something happens and they can't get through the Gulf, they can use this landline through China to sell their oil to China. You, we could see a revival of the Iranian oil economy and a large-scale revival of their oil industry as a result, which would be a large-scale revival of Iran's economy. Uh, they got pretty. They got smacked pretty hard by the well, all the sanctions that were namely aimed at their oil, but this could upend that. Um, it would also reduce Iran's dependency on having access to the Persian Gulf in a somewhat similar manner, I'll add, to how Arabia is able to utilize the fact that most of its country is flat desert to build these long, gangly pipelines to the other side of the peninsula, away from the Gulf, so they don't have to worry about things going wrong in the Gulf either. But now Iran gets to play that game too, or at least they will when the infrastructure is set up. Um, yes. Now, the scale of that dependency reduction, I think it's important to clear up uh, that the scale of that w reduction would happen over time because the road and railways need to be built, uh, that direct line to China. And it would be dependent on the capacity of whatever infrastructure is built to link Iran to the broader Belt and Road Network, which, of course, would include Pakistan, too. That's a hundred and something million people as well that they can sell their oil to. Not that Pakistan would necessarily have to get it from Iran, but, yeah... We're seeing a bit of a trade block forming where Pakistan may be incentivized to do so and do this trade with Iran. Who knows? We'll have to see how this plays out in the mid to long term. But for the short term, the of course, the roads still have to be built and the rail lines have to be built. Those will take a minute. Uh, but number two uh, on this list of possibilities that I see uh, we will likely see China pay the Iranians to build a nice fat port somewhere along their southern coast, and in exchange, the Chinese will get docking rights to that port. Uh, or the Iranians simply can't pay back the debt, so they're forced to sign the port away on a 99-year lease to China. That sounds fair. That could happen too. And that... Whichever one happens, I'm sure that Chinese will either use an existing port and just buy it off the Iranians, and or they'll have them build a new one. If this were to happen, it would give China the ability to project power into the Middle East, likely to back up Iran against regional challengers that might threaten China's interests in the region. Uh, of which there are an increasing number, namely energy. Uh, Russian natural gas can only do you so much. Eventually, you need that sweet petroleum. And the Middle East is the best way for China to get that because East Asia is bone dry when it comes to oil. Uh, so this would give... I brought this up before when I talked about the Belt and Road, how if they were to be able to get it through Iran, they could have a direct line to the Middle East 
and they wouldn't need to worry about shipping their oil uh, to a degree. I mean, you can ship more by sea than you can by land, uh, barring some sort of revolution in land transport technology, uh, which we may see. I mean, we are kind of in the early stages of a new industrial revolution. We'll have to see where that takes us. That's a whole other thing going on in the background with technology and whatnot. But so far, uh, most things go by sea because it's cheaper and you can carry more because you can float it rather than having to worry about maintenance costs of the roads on top of the vessel you're using to transport it. And due to gravity, you can't transport as much because it'll fall apart on itself or go really, really slow, which is costly. But this is still a game changer. Uh, these roadways uh, and railroads that China can now have access to the Middle East directly through Iran. That's the key to the Middle East. But um, we I've talked about how they'll probably get a port in Iran and they can project power into the Middle East. That's going to be one of the major changes that this deal ushers in to the region, really. China being able to project power. So now you have, what, three of the big boys being able to get to the region? Russia by proximity, America through power projection, super-duper long-range power projection, and China through the string of pearls. And physical land connections, they can project power into this region in time as well. Now, what will that mean for the region? Uh, it'll mean things will get more complicated. <laughs> That's what it means, really. But it's an interesting development. It seems China's playing the role of a rising power very well. Um, now, this would give China the ability to protect... They can protect anything they can protect against challengers that might threaten their interest, such as oil shipments that have to go by sea because it's too large. String of pearls, China can move their navy to the region to protect their shipping. Will their navy be safe? No. But can they get their navy there? Yes. Oh. This is such a messed up place. But hey. At least they have Iran as a friend, kind of, maybe, who knows. At, at least they're letting them build railroads. That's, that's, that's the important part. Um, but they can defend their interests in this region. And that's going to be the major game changer for the Middle East, that I believe. Uh, especially as America eventually goes back to its isolationist tendencies, which grow stronger by the day. Uh, especially within ya boy. But, speak... I mentioned interests, uh, and one of those interests would lead us to number three on the list of possibilities, and that is the expansion of the Belt and Road, primarily to Europe through Turkey. Now, Iran actually has a land border with Turkey. Now, albeit it's a very mountainous one, and probably really really hard to build infrastructure through a mount through a mountain chain uh but that doesn't seem to stop 
that doesn't seem to have stopped the Chinese so far. They built it through the damn Himalayas to get to Pakistan, and they're going to have to build it through the Himalayas again to get to uh, Iran. Or maybe they'll use the existing rail lines that they're building in Pakistan and then take a sharp U-turn. Well, not a U-turn, but a sharp what? Right turn? Left? Probably right, if they're going south. A sharp right turn into Iran, and boom. Maybe they'll build it through Afghanistan, maybe. Maybe they'll get Afghanistan to sign on to the deal. I don't know how the Taliban will feel about that, but... Uh, hey, Central Asia. We, new routes on land are being opened up, and by force, because these th things have to be built and maintained, but they're being opened up, and they're opening up horizons with them. Uh, Iran has a land border with Turkey, which means that due to China's... Uh, well, relentlessness with the with the construction of this project, those mountains aren't going to do jack to stop it. Which means that China will be able to reach out to Turkey to get them to sign on to the deal, and that'll that'll be it. They'll have completed the project. Really, they'll be able to get to Europe through the Middle East, the old way, the old old-fashioned way. That where the Silk Road went through northwest China, came down through Central Asia into northern Persia at the time, and then went from Persia to Turkey, and then went from Turkey to Constantinople, and now Istanbul. And from there, it got to Europe via land. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we are literally watching the resurrection of the ancient Silk Road. Very, very, yeah, what can I say? Interesting thing to watch. Uh, and again, I, I, I swear I almost missed this story because I was skimming over it, but I decided to read. And what a major development this is. <laughs> I mean, they can, they're going to build it. We'll just, we'll just say that much. They're going to build this road and they're probably going to pay fat stacks to get Turkey to sign on. Now, this, in conjunction with Iran being a formal part of the Belt and Road Initiative, means China will be able to complete the planned sections of infrastructure. And the reason I kept bringing up Turkey is because they've already planned this out, that they wanted to go through Iran and go through Turkey to get to Europe. That was the plan. Now, half of that plan is finished. Well, kind of, technically. They have Iran signed on, so they can complete half of it. There we go. And all that's left, really, is to get Turkey to sign on, and they can get to Europe. They, the Silk Road will have been revived. And it'll be a land route, which will be quite a major shift from the, uh, the early colonial era, where things started moving by sea rather than by land, and that was really started by like the Portuguese when they upended the spice trade and sent it around Africa to Portugal instead of through the Ottomans. But now we're seeing the revival of the land routes. The, the land Silk Road is back. The Maritime Silk Road, on the other hand, has a bit of an issue. And that is how we're going to excellently and very uh, elegantly 
segue into the next part of the podcast. And that is the new Suez crisis. And that's probably going to be the title of the episode. From, I'm, I'm not even going to lie. No, I'm, I'll, I'm sticking with it. I'm liking it. It took me a minute. I tried to think of something a little more creative, but you know what? This one stuck. But now that we have our episode title and one of the final segments of the podcast, let's get into this. So apparently, a large cargo vessel named the Evergreen, while it was sailing through the canal, ended up, for reasons still unknown, turning sideways uh, so that it was completely perpendicular to the flow of water in the canal. And because it's so huge, it's blocking off the canal to anything larger than the tugboats that are currently trying to get it unstuck as we speak. Now, they'll probably have to unload the cargo of the ship itself to, and then try to dislodge the ship from wherever it's stuck. Um, and they'll probably have to do that because all that cargo means lots of extra weight. And lots of extra weight makes it harder for the tugboats to, uh, well, tug. I saw a map, uh, and it was, like, overlaying. It, it, it's a map of, like, Northeast Africa, so you, like, see, what, Egypt. You can see Arabia and the parts of the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. And a little bit of the Arabian Sea beyond the Red Sea. And it had these little markers, these little markers that were representing ships uh, that were going towards the canal. Uh, and yeah, I gotta say, it's a massive traffic jam. I mean, there are boats sitting in the eastern Mediterranean, all clustered up together. The Red Sea almost wasn't visible because there were so many ships stuck just waiting to get through. Because there's a boat in the way, in the canal. It's not smart to go through the canal until the other boat is out. So everyone's waiting outside the canal, or at least the smart people are. Uh, and for those who do not know, we're, we're going to get out our maps. We're going to go to Egypt. Egypt should be nice and easy to find once you get to Africa. Now, Egypt... Uh, that's our point of reference. The eastern Mediterranean is straight to Egypt's north, but the little body of water between Egypt and Saudi Arabia, that body of water, there's the Red Sea, and that is where these boats are just packed in. You can see it's really tight and constrained due to the geography, whereas compared to the Mediterranean, where ships have like more room to you know, not be right next to each other. And again, I think it's important to stress that we're not talking about cute little rowboats and canoes. We're not talking about kayaks. We're not even talking about yachts. We are talking about massive, absolutely massive cargo ships. Now, each one of those are likely carrying billions of dollars worth of merchandise and goods. Uh... The longer they're held up, the more expensive those goods are going to be when they finally get offloaded. Uh, that's uh, those ships cost money. All right, 
especially if you're like renting them if you're a shipping company and you're like renting oh my goodness that oh that's that's a predicament right there but to put it into perspective what we're kind of looking at just a piece of what we're looking at here <clears throat> excuse me imagine getting an ad on say youtube you click on it and it's this guy he's 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 selling you something he's clearly selling you something and he's he's making it sound like the best thing in the world he has some nice music going on in the background he has his life story <laughs> he, uh and you click on it you click on the ad now he says it's completely free but you pay the shipping and you decide you know what i'm gonna buy what you're selling and then this happens. <laughs> it's free, but you pay the shipping, but the shipping never ends. <laughs> now, I'll be the first to tell you that if that were me, me, my wallet, and my bank account would not be happy campers. I'll just get that out of the way right now. We, uh, I'm just happy I'm not a part of this predicament. I... I feel bad for whoever is. Imagine being the company responsible, the logistics company responsible for uh, making sure things get to, say, a warehouse on time. And you're just chilling out, waiting for the, your uh, your ship to get through the suyas. And it never comes. <clears throat> Actually, no, you're you're not waiting for it to get the suyas. You don't know where it's at. You're just sitting there going, where, where's the damn ship? You You turn on the news. Oh, there's my cargo. It's never going home. Oh, wow. Wow, this is this is something, ain't it? It's a travesty, is what it is. Uh, now, imagine, going back to our little uh, analogy with the YouTube ad, imagine that little increase in cost, uh, potentially little, well, I'm, just, I'm assuming it's little, uh, which would be an inconvenience to you, uh, having to pay greater shipping costs imagine that but on a larger more international scale ladies and gentlemen we could be looking at another serious backhand blow to the global economy which will probably lead to another gut punch to globalization as a whole as countries af after this they will begin to reassess the safety security and most importantly the reliability of their supply chains we saw a little bit of that at the beginning of the pandemic and you had these supply chain disruptions due to china going into lockdown and there was talk then about supply chains and potentially relocating them and you saw a number of countries actually take action to do that japan basically threw a sum of money they they threw fat stacks of cash at companies to literally pick up and come back to Japan. Or go somewhere else, really. I think they went back to Japan. Maybe they went somewhere else. But the Japanese took action immediately. They said, no, 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 no. They said, no, 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 no. And we saw a little bit of... We saw a little bit of that kind of before the pandemic under the Trump administration. The trade war... And we saw a trickle back of some manufacturing jobs for like the first time in what? How many administrations? 
how many years? We got like half a million jobs created in manufacturing. So that was that was something. <clears throat> so we were already seeing this kind of questioning of the reliability of supply chains, or at the very least, the practicality. That's what we were seeing. We were seeing the questioning of the practicality of these really long and gangly supply chains, especially as more nationalist sentiments have begun to rise. Uh, and people are asking, where is my job? And the more the government doesn't have an answer, the more the people say, you know what, why don't we bring it back? Why don't we bring those jobs back? And what's the government going to do? Say no? That government doesn't exist. Or at least they, if they do exist, they won't exist for very long because they'll get voted out of office in time. Because people really like having their jobs. And that was just one of the things we saw in the lead up to the COVID-19 lockdowns as a response to the pandemic in 2020. And those lockdowns, of course, caused supply chain disruptions when China, the current workhouse of the world, uh, it went into lockdown and people suddenly didn't have medical equipment or drugs. And we saw a minor push here in the U.S. to manufacture those. We saw a massive loan being given to, I think it was, what is it, Kodak, the like camera making company. They were given like this massive loan to begin pharmaceutical production. And we saw the U.S. begin manufacture of ventilators and whatnot. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if we began manufacture of masks, but we had like initiatives for homemade masks. They weren't like government. I don't believe they were government, uh, but they were like at a citizen level. So we saw a mini revival of the American production base here as a response to the supply chain disruptions. That really didn't last all that long. It was like about a month or two. But this, this is going to be another blow. And it could make countries and companies who didn't take supply chains seriously or the potential of disruptions to them seriously, it could make them really rethink their strategy long term. Because they, two in a row, all right, we have 2020, China Golden Lockdown. And now you have 2021, boom, there's a ship stuck in the Suez. Um, That's not good. Now, the significance of this one event uh, is not lost on anyone. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll actually go back to some of my notes here. These, we we could be seeing another backhand blow to to the global economy and a gut punch to globalization as countries will begin to reassess the safety, security, and reliability of their supply chains. The natural conclusion that a lot are going to come to from this uh, is to keep as much of those supply chains either in-house or keep them regional. And we'll probably see over time long-haul shipments become exclusive to necessities that you cannot get regionally like energy products, namely petroleum. Uh, now, that's the mid to long term adjustment that I see coming, you know, this move away from long gangly supply chains into more local, national and regional. Um, the short term, however, won't be an adjustment as much as it'll be agony, pure agony, 
the longer this goes on, the worse that agony gets, uh, especially for countries who haven't undone their lockdowns at all and therefore haven't begun their economic recoveries at all from their 2020 downturns. And the significance of this one event, that is a ship getting stuck in the Suez, the Evergreen, uh, is at the very least not lost on anyone who pays mind to it. Uh, There's been lots of uproar about it, which is why I made it a point to talk about it on my little podcast and my little corner of the internet. Um, And there are plenty more ramifications here than even, than I can even think of. And an interesting one of the potential ramifications was brought to my attention by none other than the prophet Peter Zion himself. Uh, When he brought up in either one of his recent talks or his newsletter, I forget which one it was because I've been binging his content lately, we're not going to talk about it, but anyway, he brought up piracy. Piracy. And given the large numbers the ridiculously large numbers of container ships who are stuck sitting on either side of the canal waiting to go through with all of these billions of dollars of goods sitting on their their cargo bays um they would be easy pickings for pirates uh the most infamous of which being the somalian pirates we all think of when we hear the term pirates you know, the ones we think of right after, the guys with the eye patches and the hooks. Uh, and when we look on a map, the situation doesn't get any better when we try to talk down, for those who would try to talk down the threat of piracy. If we look on a map, that does not help their case. Uh, it helps Peter's case. Because when we look on a map, Somalia, technically speaking, is right there. That is the hot spot for Somalian piracy, the Arabian Sea heading into the Gulf. Uh, well, no, not the Gulf. The Arabian Sea heading into the Red Sea for ships heading toward the Suez from that direction. That's a hub of piracy, which is why there's like multiple countries who have naval bases in Djibouti, which is another country in the region. Uh, and those bases are specifically for anti-piracy operations. Like, it's that prevalent that all these countries decided, you know what, this is a great place to not have pirates. And so they put a naval base there. Up to and including the U.S. and China. Uh, The one place they come into close proximity with, their militaries come into close proximity with one another. There was incidents about Chinese lasering the eyes of U.S. pilots a while back. But, uh... (laughs) You gotta love. You gotta love when uh, you have these little squabbles between the big boys. Um, yeah, so Somalia existing uh, is not making this situation any better. And things, I'll stress, could get worse. But for now, and again, they can get worse just because of the piracy. But for now, we'll keep our eyes on the previous things I mentioned regarding the economic ramifications uh, due to higher transportation costs. Just that alone. Because if and nothing else happens, that's going to hit anyway. It's already probably in the pipeline to hit at some point when these ships unload their cargoes at a dock. It'll hit eventually. 
Now, amid the chaos, however, a certain house favorite great power is taking steps to make an opportunity of this crisis. Now, that great power is Russia. Now, what are the Russians up to this time? They're dropping not-so-subtle reminders that the Arctic route along Russia's long northern coastline in Siberia is available as an alternative to the Suez. And it's surprisingly a shorter route to go from Europe to East Asia. It's shorter. The Russians have been investing in icebreaker vessels uh, recently. I believe their number is up to around five. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they can break through six meter thick ice. Uh, so we, you combine that with uh, apparently the ice getting thinner and thinner around the ice caps. <coughs> and due to the changing, the constantly changing climate of the earth. And you have an opportunity for Russia to utilize what was previously a godforsaken land to their benefit. That being northern Siberia. So we could be seeing something something pretty major here. Um, again, it's a shorter route. That's that's the really surprising part. It's a shorter route to get to East Asia. And you have to like look at it as a globe rather than the flat maps we usually look at it through to understand why it's shorter. Because um, when you look at it on a globe, you go, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense that you would go that way if you had the opportunity. Because Russia, once you get to the other end of Russia, you're in Asia. Well, you're, in, you're either in Asia or you're in North America. That's, that's easier to understand if you look at it through a globe and you look at it from the North Pole. But looking at it from a regular flat map, it would be hard to understand why, and that's kind of like the that's kind of like the trouble I have when I have to think of it through that lens to understand why. But it's shorter, therefore it's more cost effective, especially if the Russians are paying the price to break the ice. Hey, that rhymes. Now I'd imagine that the fact that this route can't be blocked off by a single wayward ship uh, making a wrong turn at the wrong time is probably going to be a major selling point for the Northeast Passage, as it's called, moving forward. Alright, and we will... That is a major, major power play. And that is an excellent way to transition into the last part of this podcast, which is our closing segments. Alright, and we're coming back. Major, major power plays made by the Russians. I don't know... They feel like they're on the clock or something, and they feel like they're just in the hot seat, and they're doing this, this, that, that, and that. And the Chinese are like, oh, goodness, we're going to do this, this, that, that, and that. I don't know what is up with these two, but they're they're on fire really recently, making money moves, I gotta say. And in this case, almost literally. I mean, if Russia is able to successfully reroute a decent fraction of the trade that goes through the Suez... And get that to go through the Northeast Passage. That'd be huge for Russia, geopolitically speaking. I mean, historically speaking, when you're a hub of trade and you command the trade routes, you hold 
outsized power. And that holds true even today, where the American Navy guards the sea lanes, uh, for the most part. So now, with this new, these new routes being opened up by new players, well, not necessarily new players, these are actually some really old players, Russia and China, but these new routes being opened up by them, or modern in the case of the Belt and Road, they're challenging the sea time, maritime uh, infrastructure, trade infrastructure, that was really established at the beginning of the colonial era. Well, I guess really the age of discovery would be a better point of reference. The, the beginning of the age of discovery when the Portuguese went around Africa and got to the Arabian Sea and interfaced with the spice trade directly. Uh, from the source, rather than getting it from the Ottomans or the Venetians. So we we see this shift in who's controlling trade. Now, will it be China through the land route? I imagine they'll command everything on land. That's what it's looking like. And it's also looking like Russians are carving a piece for themselves uh, via the sea and on top of being a part of the Belt and Road. We could we could be seeing some major shift in the passive power uh, caused by trade and control over trade routes. And what can you say? It's money, money moves. Uh, these new trade routes are being adopted from this active participation by the route owners because they do have to make these routes usable, like. Again, China has to build the rail lines and the roads of the Belt and Road Initiative, and then those roads have to be maintained. And the Arctic route uh, for Russia's Northeast Passage, they need icebreaker ships. But the investment is already being made and is slowly but surely rerouting the major trade lines both on land and at sea. China's opening up the land as a means of moving goods via the Belt and Road, and Russia's opening up new horizons on the sea. Now, the benefits of which will likely pay great dividends in the long term. And all I can say to that is, it's peacetime geopolitics at its finest. And that being said, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast and we can see very clearly that the world is changing because the trade routes are changing uh via uh what lockdowns supply shocks or a boat getting stuck in the middle of your canal we can see that the world is changing or at the very least it's on the verge of change and we are gonna have fun watching that change together now, I have been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.